Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. Nathan here, your host. This show is all about how we can learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Whether it's in their organization, their industry or their community, we're fascinated by people who are determined to change things for the better. Our guest today is Lucy Siegel. She is a journalist, campaigner, broadcaster, documentary maker, author and so much more. You may recognize her from the one show on BBC, The True Cost, a really compelling documentary about the fast fashion industry, or perhaps from her most recent book, Turning the Tide on Plastic. Lucy is so knowledgeable and so engaging. We talk about the impact plastic is having on the planet, what businesses and individuals can do about it, the wider question of business sustainability, and so much more. Here goes. I just wanted to start by asking you the question which we we tee up all of our discussions with, which is, what's the wrong you want to right? Well, it's quite simple for me. I mean, there are billions of pieces of fragments of plastic on the earth, and I want to halt any more fragments of plastic going into the environment and into our bodies and in the air, and I want us to clean up the legacy plastics. I guess I wanted to start by saying that obviously sustainability and the environment are much more in vogue as discussion topics at the moment in recent years, but you've been doing this for nearly 20 years, writing, Mm. campaigning about it. Um, What was it that sparked this becoming your mission and your your life's work? What were the kind of key touch points along along the way? I don't know. It's so odd to think about it in these terms because obviously when you do these things, you're not really thinking about oh, is this my life's work? Because you don't know what your life's going to be. I think for me, I grew up in England and Ireland and moved around a lot, went to 15 schools. I didn't have, a, you know, the stability that uh, of a community that people grow up in one area. Always been quite envious about that. So I guess my continuity came from the wider environment. Sometimes I'd live in rural environments. Sometimes I'd live in, in cities and towns and you know the birds were the same the plants I could recognize and I think I just developed a real kind of interest in the wider landscape and obviously the British Isles uh, and the Republic of Ireland have very distinctive landscapes in some areas which was also like a massive source of inspiration to me but I'm just a I just loved nature, I guess. Mm. And I did have, you know, figures in my childhood. My granddad was very, a sort of amateur ecologist, if you like. Because you speak about his behaviour in the book that was yeah. progressive <laughs> for his time. <laughs> well, yeah, I think people thought he was a lunatic because he was, he actually worked for Shell Oil. And I don't know because I never discussed it with him. He died when I was 14, sadly, but he maybe he had he he was a a technical translator so he's working different languages and maybe he was coming across information that made him think differently but he definitely had a very progressive idea of resources and he used to say plastic is really precious and I remember going to see him you know I go to stay with my grandparents and I had a sort of 100% approval rating from my grandparents which is what you want as a kid I could do no wrong and I would turn up with in the 1980s there were these like headbands with like hearts on the end on on like 
coiled it was ridiculous I can't remember what they were called but I used to wear them all the time and they were like bits of plastic everything was made of plastic at that point yeah. and everything was you know I had a friend who came to Dis- who went to Disney World and she brought me back like a, a plastic drinking cup with a Mickey Mouse straw so I used to I was covered in plastic I was carrying plastic and you know sort of bounced into my grandparents house and my granddad was like why why have you got all this plastic this is a very stupid use of a precious material and plastic comes from oil so i guess i was starting thinking from a very early age oh that's kind of weird like why would he be so upset about that he also used to go to the supermarket and he would take his own string bags which would kind of grow as we walked back to his house, which is about two miles away. And the bags would sort of grow and they sort of trail along the floor. And I'd just be like really embarrassed by all of this stuff. But he would not accept single-use plastic into his life and into his house. So it wasn't a novelty to me when I got older to find other people who thought the same thing. And actually, because I've got quite um, an inquiring mind, as many journalists have... We're maybe not very good at sticking on the same topic for very long and learning things in detail. But there's, a, there's an old adage in, in journalism, follow the money. And I think for environmental journalism, it's slightly different. And what you normally do is follow the oil. Right, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, it's interesting when you say about the follow the money adage, what, what, were the, what were the sort of biggest challenges you faced when you started writing and reporting about environmental issues was it getting attention from your editors or? No, it was really the opposite. So when I started a stone's throw from where we are now in Farringdon, I was at the old Observer Guardian building on Farringdon Road. And I started as an editorial assistant. And really, um, my editors around me were just really really supportive of what I was doing so I was kind of lucky I worked on the Observer magazine my editor was an ex-hippie who for many years had made Welsh dresses in Wales on a commune so (laughs) he was very alive to the idea that the planet was kind of important and that we were overusing resources and all of that stuff so I suppose we had a sort of clique a lot of people from the west country actually because I'd you know lived in Devon growing up as well and we sort of were very to these issues and the observer became the first newspaper first national news tech paper to run an ethical living environment column and i was the columnist for many years for about 13 years so i had a pretty easy run at the start and actually i was sort of overwhelmed by support from readers who i was sort of an agony aunt for the environment and they mm. would send me hundreds of letters and emails each week asking different questions and you know, a lot of people just wanted someone to talk to who were also thinking about these issues. It obviously became harder as we went along because you become more known, you get more attention, and then you start to get lots of fake legal letters and stuff like that and pushback from from companies and lobbying groups and um, different groups with vested interests. So really what we're doing when we're looking at ethical living, which is what I call environmental and social justice, in a lifestyle context looking at everyday decisions and you're basically doing a lot of supply chain work so you you are again following the money following the oil yeah yeah and I guess obviously you've done a lot of work focusing on the fast fashion industry yeah um as you can imagine not everyone was hugely in favor of that I know completely and some of our clients that work in that kind of space as well so it's particularly interesting for us as a, as a business um What's been the kind of the the impact of the 
book you wrote to die for and the true cost how what's been the sort of legacy of those projects since well they're kind of weird from a personal point of view because to die for was a very slow burner and possibly slightly ahead of its time so when i wrote to die for is fashion wearing out the world spoiler the answer is yes um it it was it was a lot of people especially in the fashion industry couldn't get their heads around it they were like what is this a fashion book always has glossy plates with loads and loads of pictures of beautiful clothes and it's designed to inspire joy and provoke purchasing and acquisition and this is a book of several hundred pages on a sort of right rant into <laughs> where these clothes are being made and the effect of them and that people were like the, the pages of notes, because everything is sourced, and I knew that was really important from yeah. a legal perspective because there's some big brands and they're very, very powerful. And they, uh, in, in those days, they weren't ready to have this conversation. To Die For is almost 10 years old. And then the, the people who reviewed it, often fashion editors, they said, you must be crazy. This woman must be crazy to have gone into this in this, this much detail. And actually, my best friend said, well, you are slightly crazy, but nevertheless, it's an important conversation to have. So... I think a lot of my job has been about having a detailed, nuanced conversation about the reality of supply chain. And we really get into the deep. You know, we can talk about finishing chemicals on outerwear on for, for hours. So you don't really want to get trapped in a, lisp, a lift with lots of people who talk about the subject. But having those conversations with people actually who just want to market the really exciting story. So what's happened recently, if to die for was a slow burner, the true cost seemed to just take off immediately, which is partly to do with Andrew Morgan's amazing filmmaking. He's such a great director and the storytelling. And just he's got a very strong visual uh, trademark. Mm -hmm. You can tell it's his film. And he very cleverly told a film about global development dressed up as one about fashion. So suddenly we were able to have these conversations with people who said, my primary interest is fashion. And then they were sort of exposed to something, slightly tricked into watching something, and it changed their perspective. And something similar happened recently when I took part in uh, a, a documentary with Stacey Dooley on BBC One, on, I think it's called Fashion's Dirty yeah. Secrets. I had a similar revelation. And because you, you refer to uh, groups of people as plastic apologists or plastic deniers in the book, do you think that's a kind of, as you say, it's a trend which is moving away, whereas you used to have people might be quite staunchly in that camp now feel that's a bad place to be or that's an unacceptable place to be well I think we're seeing different shifts in that so for example I think some people in the recycling industry who used to be very materials neutral they would just talk about the process and the technology and volume how do we get more plastic in are now becoming very defensive of plastic uh, because that shows that we're winning the battle. There's a real threat to the industry. Um, and I think that the good thing about deniers is you know where they are. The difficult thing is when people pretend that they're on your side and they're not, which I think right. we've seen very much with fashion, and it muddies the waters slightly. Um, and then we see a lot of stuff pushed out as a solution, which is not a real solution. So then we have to be alert to that as well. Because we have to ask ourselves, at this point, what are the real solutions and what are the time wasters? And really, I'm sort of leaping ahead to the advice bit, really, but really that's, that's the main thing that you can do at this point, 
if you're in charge of anything, if you've got any authority, if you've got any jurisdiction, when, you're, when you've got a proposed solution, ask, is this really going to make a dent? And when you're dealing with a problem which is basically caused by volume, yeah. um, that is, it's actually quite a clear question to ask yourself. Because I guess that's why I found the, the early part of the book so interesting in terms of how it really aims to demystify a lot of what people currently think about plastic and recycling. And only once you can do that can you then really start figuring out what are the solid actions that you can take. Um, and so, so just for clarification, I think it's worth saying at this point that a lot, of, a, a lot of the messaging you hear at the moment is we need to get better at recycling plastic. Um, so don't worry too much about the volume of plastic that's being pushed out on the world each year. If we get better at recycling it, then and, and we become and plastic becomes a circular material which is constantly recycled, then we'll all be okay. That would be great if it was true, but it's not true because plastic cannot be continuously recycled. And that was my perception. I, I kind of thought of recycling as that's the thing I need to focus on most. As long as I put something in the right recycling thing, then at least that's off, that can be off my mind a bit. But reading your book and it talks about the recycling industry as a whole, it's really complex. It's almost, that's why it's the last R of your eight R's in the book because it's, it's the last resort almost. Push it to the end, absolutely. Because, I mean, the recycling industry has a number of issues and one of which is can't cope with the volume, which is fair enough. And then obviously China shut its doors to, well, obviously to me, I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> don't know this because it's quite a boring fact. But in, in 2018, China said, we, we're not going to take low-grade plastic waste. Yeah. And that's the sort of plastic waste that we excel at, at producing because we're a very supermarket-led economy in the UK. And and supermarkets famously use a lot of plastic in their supply chain. So, yeah, there's definitely a big job to do to unravel it. By the way, you do if you put something in the right bin, then it's got less chance of ending up as fugitive plastic, which mm-hmm. some people would call litter. Um, uh, so, yeah, carry on recycling. It's important to get it in the right bin. But if you can minimise what you buy in the first place, if you can tackle volume, that is worth its weight in gold and what practical advice would you give someone to tackle that volume um, that volume point like you mentioned in your book the um, the idea of like unpackaging things in the supermarket and leaving the packaging in the supermarket which I found quite interesting quite rebellious um, well, my granddad used to do it yeah, exactly. in the 1980s. My granddad would be doing that. So uh, I actually met a lady this weekend who was telling me how fabulous her WI group was. Uh, she was in her 80s and how they're very active on plastic, which I knew actually. I've worked with WI several, that's the Women's Institute, who are one of the most powerful brands in the UK and often kind of ignored. Um, but when they say something everyone certainly politicians listen but she was saying she wants to start unwrapping her groceries in the supermarket because she perceives there's been a lack of progress in the store that she shops in and she said to me I'd love to get arrested actually you know I'd really like to get arrested for this and I said, well, if you want to get arrested, Extinction Rebellion's your group. They're experts at getting people arrested. Yeah. And she said, oh, I hate them. She said, they're wasting police resources by being arrested. They should, when the police should be tackling knife crime. Even though she just literally seconds before told me that her ambition was to get arrested. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because there's a sort of exceptionalism. People always think, 
I'm fine. My organization's fine. It's these other people who are the who are the troublemakers. But you can remove the plastic wrap from your groceries without getting arrested, <laughs> as many people do. It's best if you do it as a group. And what I really like is the fact that we now have groups of people going along to the supermarket, not just taking the unwrapping their groceries, but putting their groceries into what they should have come in. So they're taking different packaging with them, they're taking Tupperware, and that's so constructive because they're, they're literally saying to the supermarket, this is what you should have been providing. You should be allowing for us to bring our own tubs and containers. You're not, so we're just doing it here. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I wonder one of the thoughts in my mind was who holds the greatest responsibility in this and who holds the greatest power almost like does the responsibility most lie with the consumers with the with the people or does the responsibility most lie with the manufacturers and and the retailers or is it is it just a, a mix of the two and there's pressure from the consumers which ultimately the retailers will have to respond to or should the responsibility at first lie just with the retailers and the manufacturers well, the retailers and, response, uh, and manufacturers have a whole load of people who they are responsible to. So they have shareholders quite a lot of the time. So this is all to do, I mean, it's not exceptional plastic. It's very similar to other issues in other industries. So if we look at fossil fuels, for example, and you look at the divestment movement, it has been very, very successful, but has faced a lot of barriers where shareholders don't want to divest from oil and gas because that's what they know Um, and even actually sometimes contrary to to financial predictions because the 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 non-fossil fuel sector for investments is actually doing really well Um, so you've got all the same sort of mechanisms and forces at work and really as consumers in fact don't even think of yourself as a consumer as citizens you do hold a lot of power to push, and we've seen some really good examples of where that pressure has exerted so much force that whole industries have been required to change by law. And that's really interesting. Let's come back to that, actually, because that's microbeads is very interesting. But what we're seeing is citizens fobbed off time and time again because essentially companies don't want to face their shareholders and that's why you can see other other supermarkets and other brands be more agile on this subject such as Iceland the store not the country so that's pretty much a a private family company so Richard Walker the MD his dad Malcolm Walker they decided they wanted to do something on this They've got previous history. They're quite rebellious as a company. And they went for it because they could. And they have been able to move quicker and further than lots of other supermarkets. But as a a citizen, and if you go and shop in these places, do you really care about that? No, you demand more. So you keep pushing, you keep pushing, and you say to these companies, I want you to stand up to your shareholders and I want you to propose this to them. As we go along, the imperatives become um, more solid, if you like. So if you start to think of plastic as a stranded asset, then that's a sort of phrase that investors and shareholders understand. And that, I believe, is what is increasingly going to happen. Because ultimately there's a big 
opportunity for companies who want to lead the way in their sector. Like you talk about Iceland being a sort of leading supermarket who have got a really um, sort of advanced view on this. But there's a great opportunity for companies across all sectors to be the company that takes the lead and says these are now our values when it comes to sustainability. These are now our practices, which should hopefully encourage the, their competitors to try and play catch up. But Well, if you think about it, the opportunity is even bigger. So if you look at plastics as a material... A lot of people are like, oh, it's so innovative, it's so amazing. Yes, it is, but it was really invented in around the 1860s by a group of chemists, who some of whom were sort of quasi-amateur chemists, a lot around the Birmingham region, who used to do experiments in their lean-tos at the side of their house, and very dangerous experiments, like it's amazing there was never like huge explosions. But they were finding alternatives to collars and cuffs and buttons so the first plastics factory is just about a mile away from here in Hackney yeah. and that was Parkinson the Parkinson works where Alex Parks um, developed a substance that could replace gentlemen at that in that era were wearing you know a uh, very formal wear when they needed collars and cuffs and buttons and they needed them to be matching and all the rest of them and there was a, a massive strain on turtles um, because turtle shell was being used for these things so he developed a plastic that would supersede that actually what happened was unfortunately for him at the same time uh, guys started wearing less formal wear and so the Parkinson works didn't last very long but we are using a substance which was invented at that time and obviously has been changed a little bit, but the chemistry is very, very similar. And we're still going on about it as if it's really innovative. So, sorry, it's a very long, long way of saying, back to your original point, the opportunity is to develop the next material. And as businesses diversify, who says that a retailer is just a retailer? I mean, you know, if you look at a business like Unilever, which has announced lots of different uh, changes to the way it's going to use plastics in the future today, this very day, you're going to start to see those businesses invest more in the supply chain so that they can develop alternative materials to plastic, I think. And that's really, really exciting. If I was a retailer, I'd be getting on board. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say. Obviously, nobody would put me in charge of a multi-million pound business. I mean, it was unthinkable. However, there are... Things are changing, and the fashion industry is changing really fast. So you look at Modern Meadows in New York, for example, and they have isolated collagen so that they're making leather in vitro in a laboratory so that they don't need any cows. Wow. wow. In the future, fashion designers won't just be fashion designers. They'll be working at the bench with scientists. Actually, that's a future that's already happening. So the whole thing is, is, is really, really different and lots of fluidity between sectors. And I think retail needs to get out of its sector, be a bit less rigid, and actually start thinking in terms of what materials could be developed for the future. I mean, come on, that's an enormous opportunity. Hey, if you're finding this interesting and already want to learn more, you need to join the Journey Further book club. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the link to sign up. Now back to the conversation. And I guess a lot of this from a business point of view goes to the, the supply chain question. And 
how how can a how can a company sort of start to do that piece of work analyzing their entire supply chain and what what could hopefully be the output of a company doing that well i think one of the things that we can talk about is honesty so extinction rebellion for example have had this kind of one of their main messages has been tell the truth about climate change and i think we can tell the truth about plastic so companies should be auditing and disclosing their plastic usage. And when we know exactly what plastic is being used, then we can make some really rational collective decisions about how much can be tolerated by the earth systems. You know, you can take the politics and the personal opprobrium out of this, really, because we now have 30 years of earth science, which is laid out in lots of different ways by lots of different research institutions but one of the ones which I find compelling is um, Stockholm Resilience Institute uh, planetary boundary science where they've essentially divided all the resources on the planet into nine they wanted ten but there was only nine different segments only one of which is climate change the rest is chemicals phosphorus all of the things the resources that we need to keep humanity going in a sense and they know where the boundaries are they know how much we can use. There's a safe operating space. If you think of it as a circle, there's a safe operating space around the outside. At the moment, we are pushing so intense, intently on seven of those nine boundaries that we are plunging into these feedback loops, which you will have read about. Mm-hmm. So we're putting the earth in a very precarious situation. But if we start really, really working with the data and understanding what industries are using what, we can pull back and we can make really rational decisions about where we spend our budget and where we, where we uh, try and regenerate our resources. So it, it's, all, it's, it's there. The data is there. The problem that we've had is companies will not tell us how much plastic they're using, and that has been incredibly detrimental to any progress. But because we do have to make decisions as society, plastic's good in heart valves, you know. We might decide it's great in cars and electric vehicles because it lightweights them. So, and it makes, you know, battery use more feasible. So we need to have these sort of rational discussions based on evidence. I guess on that point, and it's about transparency really, is this where government legislation becomes more important, actually forcing companies to be open with their data and transparent with the impact they're having on the environment not just when it comes to plastic but fossil fuels and everything as well is that is that a role for the government to play or well how do i say this politely i'm not sure that the government that we see right now is up to the challenge let's put it (laughs) that way i wonder where the appetite is for um leadership and legislation because I mean there's several things happening we've got around plastics we've got lots of um, government legislation well four key pieces of of legislation and plastics which are stuck in a sort of perpetual cycle of consultation Um, and you know you have to remember when things are in consultation they tend to get lobbied against by business and they tend to get watered down so that's another thing that businesses yeah. and industries could do, is not try and lobby against legislation in the way that they do. Um, but obviously that would take a massive kind of sense of restraint. 
Um, so we have, and we also have, you know, I think in government, I can't remember the exact thing, but for every bit of legislation, you've got to bring or, or retire three other bits. So that's how the sort of system works, so that society is not overburdened by red tape. So unfortunately, the mechanism doesn't really lend itself at the moment, and we are in something of a political crisis. So I don't, mm. I don't think that is going to come from that arena, but there is a real opportunity for businesses who are want to take that leadership role and can see a really constructive way forward. I, mean, I think a lot of our sustainability stuff is coming from businesses at the moment, to be fair. Yeah, I think because businesses are feeling the the pressure from the the discourse that's going on in the in the, in the public, I guess too. Some of it's you. pressure, but also you know, remember we all work for businesses, and lots of people who work for businesses are we're all humans, and we can see which side our bread is buttered. A dying planet is no good for any business nor individual. So, if if there was ever a time to work as a collective and show leadership, it's now, really, isn't it? I think so. And one of the interesting um, sort of reflections I had is I think often people might be very good in their personal lives, uh, reducing their plastic usage, having an environmental outlook, but almost perhaps when they go to work and they go into their company, it's almost like, oh, the responsibility doesn't necessarily lie with me anymore. It's the company's responsibility. I guess what would be your advice to someone who, who does want to start making an impact in their organisation? They might not be, they'll be reporting into many other people or there might be a, a board who make these type of decisions, but what advice would you give to someone who wants to try and spark a bit of change in their organisation? If you have children, behave like one of your children. Um, if you don't have children, there's plenty of examples around from Greta Thunberg or Thunbury, is she? That's George Monbiot, of course, all the way through. Because, like, I have met so many kids when they're going into school now, and they will not accept no, and they are questioning everything. So, I did an event yesterday uh, where uh, a little girl was head of her eco council. And yet she said her school had no recycling bins. And she was beyond furious. Like a furious mm. six-year-old is a force to be reckoned with. And she goes into school every day and has these conversations with the teachers and the staff. And eventually they will back down. And she really is so driven. And I find that the single framing, especially of Greta's message, the sort of first principles, the articulation constantly, this is the problem this is the solution that's in front of us. Let's match those up. It's really hard to argue with. And I think if you can, you just need to be relentless in your messaging, but always not just bringing the problem, bring the solution. Because who's gonna say no at this point? Whether it's recycling bins, whether it is, a lot of people who work in companies now are very conscious of their carbon footprint through flying through their emissions footprint mm -hmm. and a lot of people want to scale down but feel under pressure from their company to attend stupid meetings all the time we've all been to stupid meetings which haven't achieved anything we think why have we traveled for x hours to get here um and it's really time to start having these conversations you know skype is there we all know about skype <laughs> You know, there are things that can be achieved without expending loads and loads of emissions. And I think sometimes we need to just have a voice in the room saying, hey, what about this? 
have you thought how this looks to the outside and then we stop these really clanging awful moments it happens to everybody and it happens to every brand it happens to lots of individuals as well where you're saying one thing and everyone's pointing at the fact that you just arrived in a limousine or you just flew there in a private jet or whatever you know so we need to start just being really alert to these things and it's like all of the progress that you make in society all of these changes that you make it's much more helpful if you have representatives in the room that get the challenge and understand it it's almost having the right questions to, to ready to ask, isn't it? I was when I was sort of researching this theme for the book club, uh, I was looking on LinkedIn and looking at big companies who have sustainability directors. They have someone who sits on the board with a sole responsibility for it. But I guess in a sort of small organisations, it's essentially making sure everybody has the right questions to ask before they start a new launch, a new product or book a flight somewhere it's almost having that having that extra question that extra sort of foresight before you go ahead and do something that's a really good way of looking at it another thing is make sure you've got you've built in a little bit of time to have the discussion so maybe it's only half an hour maybe it's just a a point on an agenda let's talk about what are the environmental factors of the event we're we're about to put on Mm. or the product we're about to launch and not just in comms or PR after the product is made all the way through. So let's talk about, can we talk about microbeads? Yes, please. Okay, so microbeads, these tiny bits of plastic that are in lots of consumer products. At some point, people have designed a new face scrub or whatever within living memory. Like this didn't happen when the, you know, in the 1860s when plastic was invented. This is much more recent. A load of design product designers have sat down and they've gone, oh, let's use this tiny plastic beads as a an exfoliator or in this toothpaste. And then it's gone to the marketing department. The marketing department's gone, oh, we can sell this extra clean. Let's put some bubbles on the packaging. And then it's gone out. And then it's, you know, people use the products and these tiny bits of plastic ready for microplastics wash down waterways causing an an environmental emergency yeah. let's face it why weren't they stopped why was there not one voice in the room or two voices in the room at any of those processes going hang on this is an environmental catastrophe you're putting ready-made pollution into these products what are we doing and there's a massive risk here because eventually we're going to get penalized for this and this is a bad reputational risk to our brand at no point did that happen so whatever we produce however we produce it now whatever business we're in microbead should be a really really salient lesson to us don't get yourself in a microbead situation and why don't you think the questions were asked people not being educated enough to ask the questions people just wanting to avoid the question well, I'm sure there was something terrible going on. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the less cynical part of me thinks, well, I'm sure not being educated was true because until recently, most people didn't think this was their question. Like, I'm not an environmental, you know, this is what people might have thought. I'm not an environmental specialist. I don't know anything about ecology. Why, why would I speak up about plastics in a meeting? But now, don't you think that the the kind of Pandora's box is opened. You know, it's like, I think that's one of the things that the the Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, um, whole phenomenon has produced and the climate strikes and stuff. Suddenly, 
anybody can speak up about for and on behalf of their planet anybody yeah. it's your right it doesn't matter if you're not a technical expert or you don't have a degree in polymer in science you can speak up of course you can and it's annoying as well isn't it i mean it's that's an understatement because design good design is so instinctive and like, is again, if you go into a school and, you know, I do this a lot, show kids a shrink-wrapped coconut, which is my most hated object on earth, within 20 seconds they'll be like, that's really stupid because it's got its own shell and they've introduced a bit of pollution. So good design is so instinctive. And this is what happens when you grow up and you get a real job and you get conditioned in these environments. You stop using your instinct and you start thinking, I can't say anything because I'm not a polymer scientist. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, this kind of relates a, a bit to the, the business that we work in, the marketing advertising world. And you obviously mentioned about the, the marketing would have played a part in something like microbeads having such an impact. Where do you feel, what, or what responsibility does the advertising and marketing industry have when it comes to, to what you're sort of campaigning for? Huge huge and as does the media as does my own um industry which has hardly covered itself in glory frankly in fact my colleague george monbiot who i quote a lot i know <laughs> but i've just done a, an event with him recently he was saying that he thinks the media has done more damage than the pet petro petrol chemical industries wow. so you know um and today we have we have another bit of climate denial in one of the main papers. I mean, in one of the tabloids, it happens again and again and again. So we have to be, we have a responsibility. You know, climate science, of which I think plastics is connected, because um, plastics made from fossil fuel, um, it, it is um, a science, an established scientific fact. And I think that that has to govern everything that we do but I would say that as people move into these industries and it's always been a very glamorous create you know creative industry so you attract a lot of exceptional people they will be coming with these values and increasingly they will not compromise them so historically and I think it's the same for the media people have had to compromise their values at work and increasingly they won't be prepared to which is kind of exciting, actually. Yeah, yeah completely. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, sort of changing tack a little bit, in terms of your sort of personal mission. Almost how, with a problem that feels like it must sometimes feel like it's just growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger, how do you keep yourself motivated? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I think that because I'm so interested in individuals and behaviours, I think that I am able to take victories where I find them. And I speak to so many people because I'm a real talker, as you may have gathered. And I'm all, you know, I always engage in conversation with people. And, you know, I've had this great job for the last sort of decade and a bit where I've been working for a BBC show where we're basically paid to travel around the country and talk to people about all different topics. But, you know, for me, I'll always have a chat with them about plastics and climate and stuff like that off camera. So I meet lots and lots of people from all different walks of life. And every day, I would say that I gain insight into how change is possible and the barriers that are making it seemingly impossible. 
so it's chipping away on a really local level. I'm not suggesting for one minute that this is an issue that can be solved by word of mouth, but that's how I keep my personal sanity in check. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe, I do believe that given the chance to do something positive, 99% of people will take it. So it's just getting that message out there. It's getting that message out there, but in a way that, um, you know, people are so overburdened. You know, they're very time poor. They're often very poor, poor. And they are increasingly their All the airtime is being taken up by divisive political arguments. And to that, they bring their own history. They're often their own trauma a whole kind of rucksack of other things and I believe that sometimes you do need to have a conversation with people and I suppose going back to your previous question about the advertising and marketing industry the genius of people who do great campaigns great constructive campaigns is that they're able to tackle that on such a wide basis with so many numbers you know I saw a a a a little thing, a little film about plastics in fish that was commissioned by um, uh, Plastic Oceans UK, a charity, and made with an advertising agency. And it's genius. It's set in a fish and chip shop, and people come in and they order their fish and chips. It's all like hidden cameras. And then they're basically given a piece of plastic wrapped in batter, which they then try and eat. And it's just a really simple concept. And it's really funny it makes it makes the point and it's a thing of joy and you recognize so many people in it it's quite sweary as well which i think is good <laughs> and i just think oh wow i'd love to have thought being able to think of that and do that film like that because it's so a little bit of humor which i think is very much the british psyche and i just think to have those skills is really really amazing whereas i have to go out and talk to everyone individually you guys can just talk to you know, hundreds of thousands of people at a stroke. It's a massive power, you know? Yeah, I guess, as you were saying, having what must really inspire you to continue must be when you see people acting on what the message that you've put out. Um, Yeah, but then that's not straightforward, is it? It's like, you know, what I find hilarious at the moment because it's so human and humans are so fallible. And, you know, let's face it, one of the reasons why change is quite difficult is because we are so fallible, but that's why I kind of love humans as well. So before I walk into a room these days, I often hear a rustling noise where people are hiding their plastic. I'm like, what do I do with that information? And I guess uh, sort of building on that, how, do you do you do you have, have, do you set yourself any specific goals in terms of your work? Do you have any no. goals coming up for the future, <laughs> like sort of milestones you'd like to reach? Or mm, it's a really I don't really think that way, and I don't I don't really operate that way. Possibly I should have done more, but you know my whole career has been a real accident, and um, you know I have massive imposter syndrome, like most of most of most women (laughs) and I which I really hope will change and I I suppose I just approach it as in wow I'm still lucky to be talking about these issues and actually now more and more people are really interested which is great but you know what I don't want to I don't want to set myself goal like how would I set myself a goal what, what sort of goal would I set? I want to do X amount of programs. I want to do X amount of books. That's rubbish because 
we've suddenly found ourselves in a position where actually it's much more important if you've been in doing this a long time to listen and what I'm really trying to do at the moment is listen a lot to other people mm-hmm. because we do have this very very dynamic younger generation coming through who are not just alert to these issues but it's core to their being and they have, they're taking it on in a way like I've never experienced anything like this before no other generation has done this so I may it may be that I get an opportunity to work with some of these people and I might be more behind the scenes. I don't care, it's fine. I just want the most effective person to be saying the message. In which case, it becomes less about, oh, how many documentaries can I make or how many, you know, and I think it's really important, especially in in our industries at the moment, so media, marketing and advertising, to be really agile in your goals. And I was talking recently to a great filmmaker called uh, Tom Mustill, who's worked a lot for the Natural History Unit. He's made a great film with Greta and George Monbiot, which is out at the moment, with really simplified messages. It's so strong, so Mm -hmm. good. And he was saying, you know, that one of the things that journalists, because it's a very, very competitive environment, you can struggle with is that you're so fixated on your ambition and your career that you can produce content which is not furthering the mission, furthering the message. So for me, it's all about balance at the moment. Sorry, that's an incredibly long answer about what are your goals. No, I don't have I, any. <laughs> I, think, I think listening is a, is a really powerful goal to have. I think it's, as you say, everyone is often too focused on speaking and putting a message out there. Everyone's on transmit. Exactly. She mm. says, transmitting. I've got three final questions to ask you, which we ask all of our guests. Um, The first one, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe? Well, this probably goes back to personal ambition again. I used to believe that I had to dominate and I had to be the one who, you know, if, if, if anyone else was succeeding, I probably, you know, that I needed a bit of that pie you know, I didn't realise there was a lot of pie to go around. And that's something you learn, I think, particularly in this. And from watching other people that I really admire, particularly in broadcast and writers who are mission-led, I would say that sometimes the best play and the most effective play is to let someone else carry the message. You know, other people might be more appealing than you. Yeah. It's a hard one to take, but hey, it's true. <laughs> and then if turning the tide on plastic wasn't your mission, what do you think your mission would be? Well, I've got loads of other missions on at the same time. So, you know, I've spent many years, as you said before, trying to make the fashion industry more sustainable. So that's an ongoing ongoing mission as well. Um, there's so many things that I feel really, really passionately about that don't necessarily dovetail with conventional politics or are never given much airtime. So that's one mission. I'm also very interested in other stuff that's, I do think, in a very deep-rooted way, has a lot to do with 
environment barriers to environmental change I'm not going to explore them now but I'm very interested with trauma in society um, I'm very interested with people who have experienced trauma and never received any help with that so there's lots there's lots of different missions which I feel are all interconnected because I think all of this stuff is very interwoven um, which which I would love to explore more and, and finally, as I say, uh, hundreds of people in our community are reading Turning the Town on Plastic at the moment. I'm sure it's going to inspire them to look for other things to read. If you could recommend one book for our community to read, what would it be? There's so many great books around at the moment, and I think that's because of the, uh, the climate strikes, Extinction Rebellion. There's so many people who I revere who are bringing out new books. Um, in terms, I'm going to try and give you like a, a a really great old book, and the one that I always go back to because it's where it all started is the sort of godmother of the movement, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, written in 1967, extraordinary work, so prescient. Um, and then there are, I would really try one of the new books. I've literally got one in my bag. Hang on, because I haven't learned the title. <laughs> I've started reading, this is from Rob Hopkins, who okay. I know pretty well, um, and, and he's part of the Transition Town Network, and it's called From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. Right, so just for full disclosure, I've only read up to page 44, but it's really good. good so far. And I read that in a morning. So yeah, I, I would I would try I would try this because I do think it's a really good point. Like, okay, we're all saying what's going wrong, and we're all saying there's an emergency. But what does it, it, failure is not guaranteed? That's what I want to get across here. Yeah. It's worth having a go at change. But what would that change look like? And I think Rob Hopkins is very very good at articulating. Um, a positive future which is actually really compelling and quite beguiling fantastic hey, thanks so much um yeah thank you lucy for coming on really thank appreciate you. it and thank you to anyone who is reading turning the tide because it means the world i've learned so much from lucy siegel if you have too please subscribe please leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app and also don't forget to join the journey further book club this is a community designed for time-pressured marketers. We have over 800 members now for many of the world's leading brands. And we try and distill down the big ideas from books just like Lucy Siegel's Turning the Tide on Plastic into really bite-sized insight which you can put into action in your organisation. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to sign up. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any other feedback, any other ideas, perhaps people who we should try and get on the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Just email podcast at journeyfurther.com.